Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 13, and I'll read through verse 17. This is God's holy and errant word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, how do you smell this morning? I don't mean physically. I mean, how do you smell spiritually? What is the spiritual aroma or stench that you put off this morning? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 16, listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul says. Through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. To God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for such things? The life of Christ in us has an aroma of his resurrection power. More and more, as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, as we grow in reflecting the image of Christ, as we draw closer and closer to Christ, we begin to take on the spiritual aroma of Christ. But realize that we live in a dark world. And we live, as Paul says, among those who are spiritually perishing as well as among those who are spiritually coming to life. And so therefore, to many people around us, the smell of our spiritual life is going to be a pleasant aroma. If the Spirit of God is working in them, if they are coming to life, then that aroma of Christ is going to draw them to us. It's going to make them favorable to us going to make our presence in their life pleasant. But know this, that most of the people that you meet in your daily life, that aroma of Christ that is so pleasant to those in whom the Spirit of God is working is to them, to those who are perishing spiritually, the stench of death. And because of that, they will be uncomfortable around us. 
our presence in their lives will be unpleasant. They'll push us off at arm's length, and they might even become hostile towards us. Jesus said in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Think about the life of Christ. As he was in the world, some were drawn by his aroma of life. The vast majority of the people, the masses of the people, might have been intrigued by him, but ultimately they just ignored him. And there were some people who were so offended by his aroma, or to them, his stench, that they became hostile to him, sought to have him arrested, and had him nailed to a cross. We can expect the same variety of responses to us as we follow Christ, as we draw near to him. As we move into the second half of the book of 1 Peter, we're going to be talking a lot about suffering. And in particular, the kind of suffering that Peter zeroes in on is the kind of suffering that we face because we have the aroma or the stench of Christ about us if we belong to him. It's appropriate to call the hostility that the world expresses against us, it's appropriate to call it persecution. But I'm hesitant to use that term because we tend to have such a narrow definition of what persecution is. In other words, you're persecuted if you're thrown into a lion's den or you're thrown into jail because of your faith in Christ or you're beheaded or you're burned at the stake, then you're really persecuted. But scripturally speaking, If you know and love Christ and walk in his ways, you're going to face persecution in this fallen world no matter where you are. In some ways, the subtle forms of persecution are more difficult to deal with than the more overt ones. By subtle persecution, I mean like being passed over at work again and again and again because you're a follower of Christ who won't sell your soul to the corporation. Or being picked on by the other kids because you're seeking to do good things and not fit in with the crowd pursuing dark things. Or because you get a C on a paper that you wrote because you wrote it from a biblical worldview instead of a worldly worldview. Or because you're ostracized in your neighborhood or your workplace because you don't participate in the kinds of things that the world finds its pleasures in. It's all persecution. It's all hostility towards you because of your commitment and your relationship with Jesus Christ. In light of that, it's interesting that Peter begins this passage in, in verse 13. He begins by saying that godliness is usually pretty popular. I think that's the assumption behind what he says in verse 13. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
And I think what Peter's alluding to there is that in most times, in most places, the ethics of the scriptures, the ethics of Christianity, the lifestyle of following Christ as a disciple will be popular in this world. Not because people want to be like us, per se, but because people want to be around good people, generally speaking. They don't want to hang out with evil people, generally. It makes their life easier if the people around them are at least relatively righteous. Culture appreciates righteousness to a certain degree. That's what Paul's alluding to when he talks about the role of civil government. In God's common grace, he puts civil government in place in order to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. And Paul says, particularly in Romans 13, verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. In other words, generally speaking, the authorities in this world approve of those who are zealous to do what's good and punish those who do what's bad. Now, we know that that's not always true, and there are many, many, many exceptions to that. But generally in the history of mankind, that's been a gift of God's common grace. There is a book that was written a few years ago called How Christianity Changed the World. It's a kind of a history text, but particularly focusing on the positive, transformative, redemptive effect that the church has had in the fallen world. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs from the introduction to the book, because I think it summarizes what we're talking about. It says, Christianity has dramatically improved our world across 20 centuries in so many varied facets of our culture. Not only countless individual lives, but civilization itself was transformed by Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, his teachings elevated brutish standards of morality, halted infanticide, enhanced human life, emancipated women, abolished slavery, inspired charities and relief organizations, created hospitals, established orphanages, and founded schools. In medieval times, Christianity almost single-handedly kept classical culture alive through the recopying of manuscripts, building libraries, moderating warfare through truces, and providing dispute arbitration. It was Christians who invented colleges and universities, dignified labor as a divine vocation, and extended the light of civilization to barbarians on the frontiers. In the modern era, Christian teaching properly expressed advanced science, instilled concepts of political and social and economic freedom, fostered justice, and provided the greatest single source of inspiration for the magnificent achievements in art, architecture, music, and literature that we treasure to the present day. So, generally speaking, whether they acknowledge it or not, the culture has a lot to thank the church for. We have been salt and light in the world. I was, uh, along with many of you, were helping Jeremy and Allison move to their new house yesterday. And I was thinking about it as we were in the process of moving everything in with the moving truck in the, in the driveway and a team of people carrying possessions into the house. I thought, you know, what, what are the neighbors thinking? I thought about the same thing a few months ago when we were moving into our house. Neighbors, you know, they're, they're there. They're peeking out behind their windows, looking at those that are moving in next door and saying, what kind of people are these? While we were doing the moving, a, a little Scotty dog came 
wandering into the front yard of Jeremy's house and came up to the front door and we were playing with the dog a little bit and realizing this dog belongs to somebody. And so we went through the process to figure out who the dog belonged to and returned the dog to the neighbor and he was very thankful. And I thought, boy, this guy's probably very thankful that the new people moving in, at least they're friends, they're not the kind of people that shoot dogs, they're the kind that return them whenever they run away. (laughs) Generally speaking, you don't want thieves and drug addicts and child molesters and people like that moving into your neighborhood. You want good people, no matter what your spiritual perspective is. But see, the painful truth is that as individuals become more spiritually hardened in their hearts, and as cultures become more spiritually hardened in their hearts, they become more and more repulsed by the aroma of Christ in Christians and in the church. And so even, you know, as the more and more a culture looks at what is righteous and calls it evil and looks at what is evil and calls it righteous, understand that the impact that of that is, is that you as a follower of Christ, the aroma of Christ in you is going to become more and more a stench in their nostrils and they are going to become more and more hostile to you. And so Peter realizes he's talking to Christians in the middle of the first century and he's saying to them, prepare yourself. For persecution is coming, and it was. The church was about to face some horrific persecution in the latter half of the first century. I don't know what we are about to face in this culture, but I do know for sure that this culture, generally speaking, is becoming more and more spiritually hardened, and the aroma of Christ in Christians and in the church is becoming more and more a stench in the nostrils of our culture. So I think it is appropriate to say, be prepared. How do we prepare? Well, as I studied this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, I decided there's three questions that Peter wants us to ask ourselves. Three questions before we go out into the world to face hostility to the Christ who lives within us. First question, whom do I fear? Whom do I fear? Peter says, verses 14 and 15, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor the Christ the Lord as holy. What literally, if you could put that into uh, a phrase, literally what he's saying there is fear Christ. Or to use the language of the Lord's Prayer, hallow the name of the Lord. To fear the Lord. If you look at that phrase and you study it through Scripture, what that means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the basis of what we live. To fear the Lord is to acknowledge Him as the authority in your life. He is Lord. He has all power. He has all authority. And to entrust your life to Him. To submit fully to His authority. And to depend upon Him. To live a life overtly under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Do not fear those who are in the world. It's interesting that Peter often quotes Old Testament scriptures, but he doesn't do it in such a way that it's really obvious. Sometimes you have to to, to look at the Old Testament scriptures and see how it fits together. And clearly what Peter is doing in this part of the passage is quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Listen to what Isaiah says and hear the language of Peter based upon it. 
Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. You serve the one Jesus Christ who stilled the storm with a spoken word. You serve the one who conquered death. Fear him. And fear of the Lord is the antidote to the fear of man. You can't fear the Lord and fear man at the same time. It's impossible. And that's a major theme in Scripture, isn't it? From the beginning to the end of Scripture, isn't that really one of the most basic questions that God keeps asking us over and over again? Whom do you fear? Do you fear me, the Lord, or do you fear men? And generally, you can divide people into those two categories. Paul did it as those who are perishing and those who have the aroma of Christ, those that are living to Christ. In another sense, it's those who fear men and those who fear the Lord. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Like many, if not all of you, I've been trying to process this past week the free report that came out, the investigation done into the whole scandal at Penn State. And as I've read through that, and as I've tried to understand how this happened, like many of you, one of the conclusions I've come to is that the fear of man was driving the leadership of the university. The fear of man was driving the leadership of the university. They had built a pristine reputation. We all knew it. I've only been a part of this community for a few months. But from afar, I knew that the whole aura of Penn State University, of Happy Valley, was a place where only good things happen. Things that other people do in places like New York City and Philadelphia and Los Angeles don't happen here. And when that was threatened, that reputation, that glory, that honor was threatened by the reality of the sinfulness of mankind, the leadership of the university had a choice. Do we fear the Lord or do we fear man? Unfortunately, they chose to fear man. And when you fear man, you cover up sin. Ed Welch wrote a book that I know a number of you have read. Very good book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And in that book he says that the fear of man is when we replace God in his rightful place in our lives with man. Put man where God should be. And what that looks like subtly in our lives is that we begin to succumb to peer pressure. We begin to become people pleasers. And we begin to put self-esteem and approval of others ahead of where the Lord should be in our lives. Whom do you fear? The Lord or man? Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 and 6 He has said, the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And I have found, the longer I have walked with Christ, the secret to confidence, 
Success is based on confidence, no matter what you're calling in life. Success is based on confidence. But the key to confidence and the key to being courageous, the key to boldness in life is the fear of the Lord that destroys the fear of man in the heart of a sinner like you and me. We're reading what Peter writes. Remember who Peter was. Peter was the guy who was so fearful of a servant girl in the courts of Pilate. He was so fearful of a servant girl that he denied he even knew Jesus Christ. And yet the grace of God changed Peter to such a degree that only a very short time later he was standing before the highest authority in the land, the Sanhedrin, and he said to them when they told him not to preach the gospel of Christ, he says, we must obey God and not man. Whom do you fear? Second question Peter would have us ask is, where is my hope? Where is my hope? Peter goes on to say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. The word make a defense there, many of you know, the word in the original Greek there is the word we get apologetics from. And literally, that word, we tend to think of apologetics as some ivory tower study that seminary students do. But apologetics is really, the word literally comes from the idea of replying to an accusation. So anytime that you're replying to an accusation against your faith or against your life, you are doing apologetics. And notice that it's not so much your intellectual ability, when we think of apologetics, that's what we think of, it's not your intellectual ability that Peter hopes to, that points to there that we need to be ready to deal with. He points to where your heart is. He says it's our hope that is going to cause people to either bring accusations against us or ask questions to us. It's our hope that's going to cause the reaction, both positive and negative, around us. It's part. It's a key part of that spiritual aroma that we have. I thought about this as I was doing a study for the baptism class we did over recent weeks. I was doing a study through the book of Acts. And it reminded me again as I was reading through those passages that the core, the center, the very heart of the preaching in the book of Acts is about the resurrection. Over and over again, that's what the apostles pointed to, is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And that we are raised with Him, and therefore, He is our life, and He will always be our life. We live for the life that Christ has given us. Paul said in Acts 23, verse 6, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. That's how he answered the accusations that came to him. The best defense is a good offense. So when people come to you to accuse you or to ask you for the reason for the hope that's within you, respond by pointing to the resurrected Christ. Point to the hope of the gospel. You see, that's what hostility to your faith will do. When you begin to suffer because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, it will show you where your hope lies. If a hostile boss causes you suffering, you're going to ask yourself, is my hope in my career 
Or is my hope in Christ? If a hostile group of friends are causing you to ask yourself, is my hope in my reputation? Is my hope in my coolness factor? Is my hope in these relationships? Or is my hope in Christ? A number of years ago, one of my favorite musicians from the 1980s was a guy named Mark Hurd. And Mark Hurd had a song called The Eye of the Storm. And in that song, he says this. He says, in this world, thunder throbs in the darkness. Out in the eye of the storm, the friends of God suffer no permanent harm. And I just have always loved that last phrase. The friends of God suffer no permanent harm. You see, that's our hope. When the world assails us, when the world accuses us, when the world rejects us because of our relationship with Christ, that's where we rest our feet. God is our refuge and our strength. And the storms of this life, no matter what form they take, can cause no permanent harm because of Christ. Or as Paul said in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. But Peter goes on to say, do it. As you reply, as you make your response to the accusations, do it with gentleness and respect. You see, if your confidence is not in yourself, if your confidence is not in your accomplishments, your confidence is not in your intellectual ability, but your confidence is in the risen Lord who's with you every moment of every day, if that's where your confidence lies, then you are freed up to respond to the world's hostility with gentleness and respect. Because you represent the Lord of the universe. You don't need to be defensive about your reputation, who you are. You represent him. You know, the world's method of debate is to become aggressive, to shout, to ridicule, to intimidate. But we're called upon to speak the truth in love, not retaliation. Trust in the Lord. His word is true. It will always be proven to be true, whether a hostile world accepts it or not, whether they ridicule it or not. That brings me to my third and final question that Peter would have us ask ourselves as we face a hostile world. Not only whom do you fear, and not only um, where is my hope, but finally where or what is my, the state of my conscience? Is my conscience clear? He says in verse 16, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The point that Peter is making is that having a clear conscience before God and man is important to having a powerful witness, especially as a hostile world comes against you. The Apostle Paul, when he stood before Felix to give an answer for his hope, he said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience, a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul understood that the strength, the credibility of his testimony laid in his, was, was in his transformed life. And so when you face hostility for your faith in Christ, ask yourself the question, can those who are hostile to my faith point to anything in my life? Can they point to any unconfessed sin in my life 
that would contradict my claims about the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's abundantly evident that hypocrisy will kill your witness. It came out at the beginning of this past week, before the free report came out, there was uh, printed in the newspaper a uh, statement that Joe Paterno had written to current and former players shortly before he died, after all the scandal broke out. And in that statement, he said, I'll quote a part of it, it says, this is not a football scandal. And then he goes on to say, it is not an academic scandal. And I agreed with him. Who would disagree with that? It wasn't about what was played on the football field. It wasn't about the good things that were being taught in the classrooms. But what he doesn't acknowledge in that statement, what I wished I would have read later on in the statement is, this was a scandal of character. To say openly before the world there was a moral failure here of character. People in authority covered up sin instead of confessing it. You see, I bring this out not to pick on Penn State, but to bring the message home to us. That the power of our witness to Jesus Christ, the power of our witness for the gospel, doesn't lie in us living a perfect life. Sure, we could avoid hypocrisy if we just live perfectly, but that's not going to happen. But the power of our life backing up our message of the gospel is not that we live perfectly, but when we do sin, we confess that sin, we are cleansed in the blood of Christ, and we turn from that sin by His power to walk in righteousness. And that's when our lives become a testimony to the power of the gospel. And that's what Peter's pointing to. Is your conscience clear? Is there unconfessed sin that you're covering up, that you're hiding, that needs to be brought out into the open, that needs to be covered in the blood of Christ? If so, get on your knees and confess that sin and turn from the power of that sin by the power of Christ alone. And then you'll be ready to make a defense for the reason for the hope that's within you. Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Paul and Peter, think about their lives. These are, these are our mentors spiritually. These are great men of the faith. But these are men who are guilty of murder and adultery and cheating and lying and stealing. But they confessed their sins openly and turned by the grace of God. You know, I'm kind of glad that I didn't move here two years ago into Happy Valley where perfect people live. But I have moved into Happy Valley where broken people have the opportunity to turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need to fix our reputation before the world as being a perfect place where bad things don't happen because people aren't sinful. We need to proclaim to the world that this is a place where broken people find hope and life, and forgiveness, and truth in Jesus Christ. And this is the hour for the church to speak up. We have the only hope for this valley. You have the hope for this valley. And so, let me go back and ask the questions again. This morning, whom do you fear? Where is your hope?
Is your conscience clear? If the answer to all of those is based in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are going to be a courageous, bold, invincible army taking the truth to a people who desperately need to hear it. You see, we as Christians do not just endure persecution. We embrace it. Because we understand that persecution comes to those who project the aroma of Christ. And we are the ones who live by the hope of what Jesus said, that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or as Paul said, let me close with these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we just ask simply, as we reflect upon the message of this passage from your word, We ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, convict us of our sin, drive us to the cross, renew us by your grace, and then send us forth with courage and boldness, fearing the Lord and projecting an aroma of Christ and a hope in the gospel that will transform the darkness around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.